John the Baptist prepares the way. How far are we reading, by the way? The whole book, right? There you go. Glory to God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make the path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree Therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and beheld the heavens were and behold the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. One of the great aspects of celebrating the church calendar year over year is that you, by working through various passages again and again, you see greater glimpses of God's glory. And there are many aspects to each text which can be emphasized. In years past, if you were here during the time of Epiphany or have ever heard a sermon that I would have given on Matthew 3 or John 1, you may have remembered seeing or emphasizing the fact that John the Baptist is the first public pointer to Jesus Christ. He is the first one in the Gospels who identifies Jesus Christ before the nations or before the nation of Israel uh, in a public setting. Jesus is not unveiled at his birth to the whole nation, but rather to a small representative sample. During Christmas this this year and years past, we looked at how the shepherds were a representative sample of Israel. Israel was a nation full of shepherds. The first people to see Jesus at the manger are shepherds, because God is intending to say, this is the one, this is the Messiah to the shepherding people. He's the good shepherd. 
in, in years past, we've looked at Matthew 3 in the lens of the public unveiling of Jesus, and we've also looked at how he is God's chosen and special and anointed messenger. We've also looked at how John the Baptist's words that he prophesies concerning Jesus Christ mostly focus on wrath, and so there is this element throughout the text of the judgment that is coming that John the Baptist pronounces against the people. And it's important for us to understand the necessity. Why did Christ need to die? Why could not God have simply relied on commanding his people to obey the law? And we see John the Baptist's great indictment as answering that question because they can't. And so John the Baptist, in years past, we've emphasized, he, he says that there is wrath coming. And he's warring against the Pharisees, and he's identifying those as children of the serpent. He's identifying them as being on the wrong team. They're, they're in league with that original serpent who deceived our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so we've kind of looked at that. We've also looked in years past at the example of going through the baptism of the Jordan as God doing a new work in the nation of Israel. Those are great emphases, and those will be discussed slightly today, but we'll be mostly focusing on an, an aspect of John the Baptist's prophetic role of not only identifying the sins of the people, but also the sins of himself. And that's not clearly self-evident on the surface of the text without examining what's going on, and also how Jesus Christ speaks of true authority. And Jesus Christ, in his first moments of demonstrating himself to the nation, at the very beginning of his public ministry, he is testifying to the nature of his authority being a godly authority. And that's contrasted with John the Baptist's critique or indictment of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then finally, we're going to look at the role of the fathers speaking over Jesus. Of course, this is one of the great early Trinitarian passages in the Gospels, and we're, uh, we're going to look at that, but only briefly. I want to focus on clearly here the father of the nation, that is the father Yahweh, is identifying a chosen son to come and administer and to, to bring healing to his people. So uh, in, light of, in light of that organization, let's, let's get started really quickly. John comes as a prophet from the Lord. He doesn't come uh, just out of left field. It sounds like that if you're unfamiliar with the text. It just says there was this man living in the desert, and it seems as if this guy is just showing up on the scene unannounced or uh, as an unexpected prophet, but he was actually, as we have seen through Christmas, he was actually given by God to the people of Israel to prepare the way for the Lord. And as a voice of the Lord, he cannot be stopped. Uh, one of my great uh, pastor friends, I call them a friend, they don't know who I am, but I like to imagine that we'll be friends. We, we will eventually be friends. Uh, sh shared it this way, that when John the Baptist is speaking against Herod, he is speaking against Herod, and, and Luke's account gets this uh, very, very well, He's speaking against Herod's sins for stealing his brother's wife and all of the evil that he's permitting in his kingdom. And then it, Luke kind of summarizes it and caps, caps it off with uh, the fact that he then throws John in prison as the capstone of his great iniquity. And then he, John, uh, John's actually beheaded. And my, my pastor friend who was commenting on this, it, he says that John the Baptist's voice was still echoing through that moment where he was whispering in 
Herod's ear, repent, repent. And even after the, uh, the decapitation that John suffers, he's still speaking. This is a voice from the Lord. This is not a voice. John the Baptist is not out in the desert as a religious, zealous person with his own agenda saying that the nation needs to repent. Rather, he's sent by God. And in fact, this is the message that he gives to the people and the message that we need to hear desperately, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many of us believe that at hand means is coming soon. But what John the Baptist is literally saying, the the phrase at hand means at the door. How many of you have ever had a guest over to your house? If they're at the door, that means you have to open the door. You can't leave them there on the porch. They're already there. That's very different from getting a text saying, I'm on my way. It, being at the door means immediately breaking in. And John the Baptist is announcing to the people that they need to reorient themselves toward Yahweh. They can no longer live or survive at this changing of the guard, if you will. It's no mere changing of the guard, but rather a total uh, restoration, not revolution, but rather a Uh, ushering in of the actual righteousness of the new covenant, which Jesus brings. Uh, Jesus, when he brings his kingdom, he brings it fully and ever more fully all throughout the rest of history. He doesn't bring it in in a propositional way. Jesus, when he picks up this very same uh, speech or very same message, if you will, he does not say the kingdom of heaven is coming. He says is at hand and something that is in your hand is not too far away. From you. So the kingdom of God coming near means that we do not wait for a future day in which it will be established. John the Baptist is saying, God is coming, God's kingdom is coming, and God's king is coming. And those behaviors which are not kingdom behaviors, those pillars which you have established in your life, will be done away with. John the Baptist says, every mountain which is established, of course, as a prideful mountain will be humbled and every valley or a depression or those who are oppressed will be raised. Jesus is setting the wrong things right. He's bringing his kingdom, the place in which he rules. So when you think about the kingdom today, if you think of it as something that you will work for to see later, you are ve- uh, severely mistaken. John the Baptist says the kingdom's here. Christ, when he is rising up to the Father again. He says, all authority is now given to me. And so the the kingdom which Jesus Christ brings is here, and it is ever more developing. It is not like something that we are waiting to hatch. It's something that's here and is growing and filling the earth. And so God's kingdom is the domain and the rule of God's king. This is important to understand because Israel in her life, as we've been studying the life of Israel, we've noticed that Israel often sins in specific ways. Here we see that Israel has sinned in the past by rejecting God as being their king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel is communicating with God and and God says to Samuel, do not be ashamed, don't be disheartened. They have not rejected you, but have rejected me as their king. And he actually identifies it not as a sin of the people that is abstract, but rather a specific sin they wished to be like the other nations. It's important to see that in the text next time you take a look at 1 Samuel 8 and 9. It doesn't say they wished to be like the other nations having a king. It says they wished to have a king who was like the other nations' kings. 
So they're not wishing to have a king who looks like Yahweh. They wish to have a king who will lead them into their vision of societal progress, of national thriving. They wish to establish their own dominion apart from Yahweh's rule. Is not this exactly what took place in the desert as they grumbled against Moses over and over again? They threw him off saying, we will not have this one and, and we won't acknowledge their priesthood. And in fact, even among the priesthood, even among Levi's sons, there's constant rebellion even in the tabernacle service. Surely Israel is a land of revolutionaries, of rebellious people who wish to throw off the government of God and establish their own. John the Baptist comes and announces to the nation with a corrupt king, Herod, who was not of the line of David and also a compromiser with uh, not only moral compromiser, but also a political compromiser, and also the Pharisees and Sadducees who had corrupted the worship of Yahweh and the practice of Yahweh, laying harsh interpretations on the people. He's announcing to both of them that their reigns are ended and they are going to be cut off. And he says every branch which does not produce fruit is going to be cut off and cast into the fire. That's not speaking about the end of the age. That's speaking about the cessation of their power, their influence, Uh, when God brings judgment against the people. So this kingdom, which comes, comes in a gracious way. It doesn't come as we understand military activities right now. For example, in World War II, the way that the Nazis conquered all of Europe uh, as it lay before them was a strategy of war called Blitzkrieg. And Blitzkrieg just is German for lightning war. And if you're like me, uh, you know, German descent, I love German language, but I we, we luckily got out in the 1820s or something like that. We, we missed a lot of bad things in Germany. Uh, we missed the development of higher critic theologies. We, demi- uh, we missed Nazism. So I'm, I'm glad, I'm proud to be a German by heritage, but God is no respecter of persons. I love the term Blitzkrieg because of what it means. It means lightning war. And what they attempted to do as their strategy was not to declare war, not to announce it, not to telegraph their punches if you're a boxing uh, fan. They came in and they just rolled in as fast as they could and took over city after city. They didn't announce. They moved very st- uh, with stealth and then moved in and took over as fast as they can uh, to put an end to the opposition before it takes place. God's kingdom is totally antithetical to that. God does not impose his rule on the nation top-down, all of a sudden, changing of the world in such a way as to leave all of the, his chosen people without a defense. That is, he announces his coming kingdom through John the Baptist beforehand so that the people might be able to prepare themselves, of course, by God's grace alone, but rather responding to a message of repentance, announcing beforehand, change your way of thinking, change your way of living, change your motivation. God's king is coming. Submit to his rule now, lest you perish in the way. This is exactly what God's gracious gift of the gospel is. And if you actually look at the book of Acts over and over again, the apostles are not saying, consider Jesus, come, you know, uh, respond to this altar call, but rather uh, Acts 17, God has overlooked the times of ignorance and he commands all people everywhere to repent. You might reconsider your strategy of evangelism the next time you're ministering to someone or or uh, proclaiming the gospel, at the end, when you ask them whether or not they wish to 
continue to follow after this Lord, which you hopefully have proclaimed, consider whether you say, do you want to receive Jesus Christ or would you like to bow the knee now or later? But this is a gracious king. This is not a tyrant. This is not an overbearing king. It's a gracious king, and now is the time to repent. So John the Baptist is announcing this is coming, and it cannot be stopped. Just as God's word goes forth and accomplishes its work, God's prophet speaks God's word, and it cannot be prevented. So he sends a messenger beforehand, and look at what takes place in verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Again, examine your preconceived notions of how to do evangelism. John the Baptist got a very good turnout. John the Baptist had a, according to the high-gloss summary of these phrases, all Jerusalem, all Judea, he got a 100% uh, on the, on the test, or a thousand batting average. I, I think it's interesting, and of course, we're not going to delve off into the issue of baptism here, but it does not say the men and the women of Israel. It says all Jerusalem and all Judea went out and were baptized. I think that's an interesting point. I'm not going to uh, belabor that. But John's call to repentance is so great that all the people respond. This is kind of like a, re, a new Jonah, right? Jonah goes and says to Nineveh, he says, you know, everything is cut off, you will all be destroyed, and there is no chance of God relenting. And what do they do? They proclaim a fast, the king of that city proclaims a fast, and he commands even the animals not to drink any water. And it actually says that God relents, even though the word that Jonah had given is judgment is sure, uh, your days are ended, God's coming against you, and he's going to destroy the city. And so here, John the Baptist is bringing this message. The kingdoms that Israel had wished to set up are ended. They're done already, and it's merely just time for the, uh, the Polaroid to uh, become clear, as it were. So before John goes with this message, we clearly see the aspect of washing. This is not the first time in which washing has showed up in the Bible. And I want you to, uh, to just spend a few minutes with me here thinking about the nature of baptism. And many of us, we have very well-developed uh, understandings of baptism, but we disconnect them from all of the baptisms in the old covenant law and what was commanded by God to be done by their people. So we're going to look at them very briefly. Uh, their washing that they did was typified beforehand. It was done beforehand in the nation of Israel. And it's actually the case that those who are hearing John have a understanding of what washing means. It's not simply a new idea that John the Baptist shows up and he invents baptism. You know, we call him John the Baptist, and some of us mistakenly think that this was his idea, but rather he's just doing something that is a prophetic sign by God. In years past, we've looked at how this was Israel going through another exodus, essentially. They had lived in Egypt, and when God was delivering them from oppressive Egypt, he takes them through the waters uh, which was one of the songs we sung today, John the Baptist is saying the whole nation is now like Egypt. You all need to cross over into this new kingdom that God is fully unveiling. And so uh, this is that's just one very small uh, type beforehand, but we're going to look clearly at some other very good examples of what washing means in the context of the Old Testament. So before Yahweh meets with Moses, the people have to be washed. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, God tells Moses to prepare the people. They must wash their garments. 
and they're to spend a period of a few days beforehand before Yahweh will meet with Moses. Moses is unable to meet with Yahweh before the people are washed. Moses is clearly a representative of the people. So because Moses is going to meet with Yahweh, all the people uh, who need washed uh, are the entire nation. Therefore, we see that God is going to come in the flesh. Before Yahweh comes and meets with Moses, all the people have to be washed. Again, John the Baptist is here. All the people are washed. What's the implication? That God is coming near. It is not just Jesus Christ as a man, but God in the flesh is coming near. Anyone who has a leaking sore or a discharge, uh, you might consider this an open wound or a pus, uh, in the law it was commanded that they must wash beforehand or else they could not come before the temple. They were ceremonially unclean. God is intending to teach the people something through these washings. Those who touch the offering which bears the guilt of the people must wash afterwards. Uh, It's not enough that they make atonement for their sin, but the one who places his hand on the offering, which uh, Leviticus says confers the guilt uh, onto that animal, then after that animal is killed and offered up to Yahweh, then that person has to go wash. The idea here is that there, there is a defilement among the people, and this atoning practice which God gave to them uh, was to, to convey to them the seriousness of sin and iniquity. So seeing how washing is typified in the Old Testament, we can conclude that what's going on in this passage is, is John is saying that all the people are bearing guilt. They're all defiled. The entire nation needs a washing. They, they are unclean. Uh, one of the you know unfortunate phrases that uh, Marxist uh, philosophies use today is the unwashed masses. They're all we're all unwashed masses. That's essentially what John the Baptist is saying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and everyone comes. They understand what it means. So not only are they washed through baptism, but they are also sanctified through baptism, or set apart to a particular work. Now, I'm not talking about a regenerative work, but even in the Old, uh, Old Testament, Old Covenant scriptures, washing was an element of being dedicated to God for a particular purpose. So we've seen the negative aspect, that is, they must wash because they're sins, and now they also must wash to be set apart to Yahweh's service. Those who are anointed priests have to be washed beforehand. Those who are going to be installed as priests, the sons of, uh, of Levi, the sons of Aaron, they have to be washed, and then they are able to go before God and serve before him in his presence. And so essentially what John is calling the nation to is a service and a dedication to the Lord. And this was God's original purpose in setting up the nation. He said, you will be a chosen people to me, and you will be my uh, representatives in the earth. And so they had fallen from that calling. But now through John, they're being restored to that calling. God is not simply just giving a new sign, but rather he's saying that this new covenant which is coming, this kingdom being made manifest, is actually restoring the original intention that I had for my people. And God does this through John's preaching and ministry. So at at this point in the text, we see John has a confrontation with the Pharisees, and this his preaching actually causes them to make a decision. I I really believe that we should be very uh, friendly in our evangelistic efforts. We should be patient with people to help them understand. But 
But at some point, it needs to come to a head. At some point, your preaching should be so convicting that people either make a decision or decide, well, either continue being a disciple of Jesus Christ or reject him as their king. And this is exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees do in this passage. They face a dilemma, and I believe that this dilemma, we can see a little bit of the aspect of what's going on in the Pharisees' heart. The, the dilemma is this. If they submit to John's baptism, they fear losing the moral high ground because of what we have just seen baptism entails. They're, they're, if, they, if they go to John and are baptized by him, they are testifying that they need washed. Yet the Pharisees and Sadducees had built themselves religious kingdoms by which they asserted their right to be the teachers and uh, healers of Israel. They had, no, of course, no real claim to that title, but through their traditions, they had established it as such. This is essentially what it means to go off and you know, make a church about you uh, with your own interpretation and your own motivations. This is a, a repeat today of what the Pharisees did. The other aspect of the dilemma is if they disregard John's baptism, if they say John's baptism, we do not need to submit to it, then they fear losing popularity with the people. Because the people recognize that this is clearly a move of God. So if the Pharisees don't join, then they don't know how to hear God's voice. See this, this fearful, man-made, completely evil dilemma that they face because their motivations are wrong? And so they fear either a public disdain, that is, all the public will think that they're not really the religious leaders, or losing uh, popular influence or, or becoming irrelevant. This is why I hate, deeply hate, and I, I think it's right as Christians to deeply hate those things which God hates. P- modern methods which uh, seek to accumulate relevancy with the culture as if we needed to curry favor with those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. I believe in contextualization. I believe in working hard in understanding how to preach to certain people groups. But if you are fearful that your message is irrelevant to people, then you don't know the essence of what your message is. In this passage, although it is not expressly taught, and this is why we need deep Bible reading, deep exegetical work, in this passage we see an aspect of Christ's authority and his obedience. This is what the Pharisees were warring against, but this is what Christ by his obedience shows us. He shows us that no authority is absolute, but rather only that authority which comes from God and is rightly submitted to God. See, the Pharisees have this problem. They say, if we submit, then we will lose favor because people will think we're sinners as well as they. Or if we don't submit, we may lose favor and the people will go and follow after Christ. And if you think that's a stretch, reread some of the Gospels. That's the major motivation of the Pharisees throughout the Gospels is that the people are turning after Jesus Christ. They're they're following after him and they're losing influence. And so they seek to kill him. That is their motivation in killing Jesus Christ, that they've lost the religious power in the, in the nation. Christ, by his obedient submission, that is what he did in being baptized by John, is done and ordained by the Father. And he teaches through his obedience that true authority is not diminished by submission to a higher authority. It is actually the only authority which can, can exist. True authority submits always to the governing authority which God has instituted. It does not submit in those things which God has not instituted. 
This is not saying that we need to simply submit to anyone who claims to have authority or anyone who wishes to use his authority for something that is improper, but rather for those who are the authorities of God, we must submit to them. And this is what Christ himself taught us in being baptized by John. And so this confrontation with the Pharisees is another aspect to John's intention. He tells all the people that they need washing, that their kingdoms, those things which they were hoping for, are ended, and the kingdoms of the world have now become the kingdoms of Christ, the kingdom of Christ. And this kingdom is coming, and it's being unveiled. And he also, in confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he shows that not only the people, but also their religious leaders need to come and be washed. But what we see about John testifying of himself in this next few in these next few verses, I believe is more amazing than what we had seen. Not only that all the nation is corrupt and needs washing, not only that their religious leaders are false and blind guides, but also that John the Baptist, in seeing Jesus, identifies his own sin. And this is when uh, I had uh, desired that you get your Bible beforehand. We're going to turn to Isaiah 5. And if you don't know where Isaiah is, it's immediately after Song of Solomon and right before Jeremiah. It's about in the middle of your Bible. Uh, It's a little to the right of that. Isaiah 5, we're going to only look at a few verses really quickly. But in testifying to the moral corruption of mankind in his opening statement, he identifies himself as one who needs to be called back to faithfulness. And so in the light of the holy purity of the Lord, John identifies his own sin. And this is something that maybe has never been uh, evident to you, but I think it's very clear in the text. I want to look at the mission of Isaiah very briefly. And Isaiah is very similar to John. Isaiah is given to the people at a time where they need to come back to God. They're wayward. They don't even know. uh, Their their sin is so dark that they don't even see their need for repentance. And if we look at verse 8 in Isaiah 5, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room. He says in verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink. If you're ever drinking before noon... Go read this verse. This is, this is a terrible situation. They're, they're greedy. They're joining house to house. This is saying that they're never, they're never content with what they have. They always have to have it bigger and better. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. These woes are not trivial woes. These are the judgment of God is coming against you. You cannot stand before the presence of God. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who, verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Lord, help us. Man, I've been guilty of that before. This is, if you ever uh, go to Oktoberfest in Germany, verse 22. Now, we have an Oktoberfest in Dayton. We're equally guilty of this. But if you ever have considered yourself to be a hero at drinking wine or beer or chugging contests, man, college was terrible. Send your kids to Christian colleges where they do the exact same things. (laughs) Then they'll feel the sting a little quicker. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. I say that uh, tongue-in-cheek. There are some good colleges. 
essentially what's taking place in Isaiah 5 is Isaiah is testifying against the people of God. He is saying they have become corrupt. They have thrown off God's law. They are blind. They have become like Nineveh. They don't know their right hand from left. He says, what are those who call good evil and evil good? Is this not what we have in our culture today? When, when the president of our country says, God bless Planned Parenthood, he, he uttered those words. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. There are six woes in Isaiah 5, and Isaiah is building a case against Israel. He's pronouncing a series of judgments, and should he get to the last woe, their judgment would be complete. But if you turn to Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees God, and he turns the woe against himself, and he says, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. That is what John the Baptist is doing. In this passage, he testifies against the people. He testifies against the Pharisees, the Sadducees. In other gospels, we see him testifying against Herod. And then when Jesus Christ comes to John, John attempts to prevent the Lord saying, I have need to be baptized by you. That is what it means to adopt a prophetic witness in this culture, to carry a burden of the gospel that is like a fire in your bones, and yet at the same time you realize that you cannot stand before him. Woe is me, for I am guilty of these same things. That's what John is is doing when he's pointing to, in John chapter 1, when he has that moment where he's baptizing and then looks and literally is a pointer to the Lamb of God who he sees in the flesh and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just the sins of the people, but the sins of the world, myself included. This is what John the Baptist is doing by identifying the fact that he himself needs to be washed. In Matthew 3, verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. We miss that so often, especially if you've ever seen maybe a Jesus video. The moment happens so quickly, we don't even give any consideration to it. John the Baptist is not just saying that uh, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized by anyone. Surely Jesus is not sinful, as we're about to look. But, but not only that, he needs to be baptized by him. Verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he consented. And look at John's obedience. It's very quick that Jesus is baptized at that point. But Jesus is baptized not because of his need for washing, but rather as the head of the body and the forerunner who goes before you so that by his reception of the thing, you might also be made an heir. Jesus undergoes baptism as an act of humbling obedience to the Father, again, building on this Uh, theme that we've been looking at specifically, Jesus's necessary and righteous obedience. His baptism is an identification with the sins of the people. That's another great theme to Jesus's ministry. He does not come in order to just indict the world of their sin, but rather he comes to identify with and take away their sin. And in fact, this is somewhat of the nature of John the Baptist's ministry when he's eating locust and wild honey. John is saying that there's going to be an end to that thing which consumes. Of course, locusts being uh, a sign of of that. John is testifying that there's going to be an end of the pestilence against the land, and it comes through the one who came on a redemptive mission from God. 
Christ himself actually testifies to these waters, which are prefiguring his death and resurrection. Not only is he identifying with the sin, but understanding biblically, we know that sin needs an atonement. By identifying with that sin, he also is prefiguring or foreshadowing the fact that he will die and uh, be be raised. In, in, in fact, in Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus actually says, concerning his death, he says, I have a baptism of sufferings. And so this language that Jesus uses, he's intentionally invoking that idea. He's going to be overcome and enveloped by these sufferings and uses that same word, that same idea. By his baptism, Jesus shows that he is the one who takes away the sins of the world, not just through John's testimony, but also through the actual baptism that he receives. And so at at this moment, we see God's grace because the people are sinful. The Pharisees, the Sadducees have been corrupt. The King Herod is an evil and wicked false king who does not have rightful claim to the throne. And John himself says, I need to be baptized by you. I need to be washed by you. This is what it means to be a Christian, essentially, especially in a prophetic context or a context of a culture which is increasingly denying their need for redemption, their need to be put right with God. And so because we see Jesus at this moment testifying of his own ability to be the answer to the problems found in this same chapter, we absolutely have to, and of course get to, see an aspect of the Father. Our religion is not a religion, our faith is not a faith in which we must strive to please God, but rather one which acknowledges man cannot please God. All other religious systems, all other faiths maintain that man must do something in order to be put right with God. Now that is true, but it's not true in the same sense. You must respond in repentance, but we believe as Christians that repentance is enabled by God himself, and it's his free gift. It's not something that you have to earn. And so it's no surprise at all that when we see Jesus Christ being unveiled to the people in this moment, which is what we're celebrating at at Epiphany, Epiphany simply means the unveiling, that when we see Jesus, we see an aspect of the Father. In fact, Jesus himself taught that when you see me, he said this to his disciples, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as, as soon as Jesus is baptized, in verse 16, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. This, of course, is set in the covenant context of Israel, how God said, should she sin, the heavens would be made like bronze. I don't know about you, I've never been able to cut through bronze, no matter how hard I've, I've tried. or uh, You don't work through bronze without something much greater. And so God is opening the heavens over his true Israel, Jesus Christ. The, the, and by Israel, I mean literally God's son. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I, if you have any understanding of the gospels, consider what has happened in Matthew 3. Matthew has recorded a genealogy showing that Jesus is a true heir to the throne of David. Matthew has also identified uh, the necessity for the sins of the people to be removed. He's included a story about Jesus' birth and those who come to worship him, the destruction of the innocents, and um, uh, and then finally we come to this moment where Jesus is then unveiled to the people. 
Jesus at this point in his life has not done anything to merit the good pleasure of, of the Father in this sense, that God gave him a mission which was to bring the people to an understanding of their need to be reconciled to this one. And here, God declares his favored pleasure over his son before he ever earns it. The son does not earn the father's approval through performance. And it is this very same relationship that we are offered into. Neither do we. The scriptures tell us, Paul specifically in Ephesians 1, that through God's divine foreknowledge, that is, knowing beforehand, and election, two very big ideas which you will search out for the rest of your uh, unending life if you've been granted repentance and grace in Jesus. Through those two things, his knowing the thing before it comes to pass and his sovereign choosing of you, you have been granted a place at his table, at his family. And this is actually what Jesus means when he says, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. He's not talking about in heaven, you'll have a really cool room that'll have a bigger TV than the TV you had growing up, or you'll finally have a lot of material goods. Our religion is not prosperity outside of God. What he's saying is that in my father's household, that is the place where our family lives, In that household, there are many dwelling places. And so Jesus is bringing us into this relationship before one healing or deliverance, before one sermon or teaching, before even one battle with the Pharisees. It is said over Jesus Christ's life, this is my beloved son. Actually, what I think is interesting in the original text, it doesn't say this is my beloved son, two adjectives, uh, my and beloved son. It says my son, my beloved And I think that's an important aspect to understand. It's not just that uh, we, we are adopted by God and then by that adoption, he favors us. It's, it's actually the other way around. He favored us, so he adopted us. And he didn't favor us with regard to who we were. If we read the text, if we are consistent with Matthew 3, we were like the people of Israel. We needed washed. We were like the Pharisees and Sadducees. How often have I identified things in my own life. And I I would assume that if you were honest with yourself, you would identify things in your life that are very similar to the Pharisees. How often we were like them and are still today in need of God's grace, but neither by our effort or by our effectiveness, either through trying hard or actually doing something, do we earn favor with the Father. And in fact, this is the apostolic teaching going forward. In the discussion at Mars Hill, uh, I believe it's it's Paul who says to the Athenians that uh, that God is not served by human hands. When we come to worship, it's a mistake for you as a Christian to believe that we're worshiping the Lord or ministering to him in such a way as he needs it. We're rather ministering to him because he invites us to do so. We do not earn God's favor. We do not merit God's favor either before we come to Christ or after we come to Christ. And so our father has chosen us and adopted us as sons. And one of, one of the things that uh, in, we're about to close, uh, so if someone wants to go get the kids, um, that would be helpful. One of the things to keep in mind that when, when uh, Paul in Romans is using adoption, the language of adoption, so heavily, of course, adoption is a divine reality, which, of course, we're not, I'm not maintaining that this is a metaphor alone. We really are truly adopted 
And that adoption is more real than even what we know of human adoption here. But in Paul's day, I think it's especially important to note that a natural-born son can be disowned. But an adopted son in that culture, in that time period, can never be disowned. That's what it means to be adopted and to be received into God. It means to be invited into this family and to be offered a new life in Christ such that you will not be let go. This is not a father who is going to remove you from his presence, but rather one who by his grace alone will persist in redeeming you. Now, of course, that does not mean that you should just war against his fatherly love. If you truly are a son or a daughter in this case, uh, you will persist after pleasing the father, but not in order to earn a place at the table. So as we come to the table, you should come knowing that the father receives and delights over his children those who he has chosen. We come in a joyful repentance. We don't come in a repentance that seeks to earn favor, but a repentance that is because we are receiving favor. And that's not favor in a physical material sense, as some of us like to think of favor. But of course, that will eventually be included in a righteous life, but rather a favor, which is a favor that we actually need, a favor or a righteousness with God that we could never achieve ourselves. We must see John the Baptist echoing Isaiah is true of us. We are people of unclean lips, people who need to be washed by Christ. So as we come to this table today, you should not come in a, in a sorrowful repentance, but rather a joyful repentance, knowing that you're received and honoring the Father's Son by forsaking your sins. It's a dual forsaking, forsaking your efforts, your attempts to please God, your attempt to kind of skirt under the gate to make your way into the kingdom, but also you should repent of your uh, your sin that you uh, are still defiled with in any way. And so that, that twofold repentance is the essence of what we seek to do when we joyfully partake of the table. Let's close, and then uh, we'll, we'll give thanks. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We ask you, God, to convince us of our need to be washed by him. Lord, I ask if there is anyone here who does not yet know you, who have deceived themselves into thinking that they are right with you, Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace alone, move on their heart. Lord, I, I know clearly that my words could never achieve anything unless your Holy Spirit should give grace to them. And so, Lord, I ask that you would move on us, not just those who need to be reconciled to you, but also, Lord, those who by your grace have been called and chosen. Lord, I pray that you would give us a faith which longs to do your will, not to earn your acceptance, but rather to receive. Lord, I pray that that would be at a heart level our motivation, that we seek to root out those things which hinder your fatherly love. And Lord, I also pray as uh, as we have many fathers and families in this church, that we would begin to see how your fatherly acceptance of us is to be a rule for not just our uh, natural lives or, or spiritual lives, but also our family life together. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.